Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you. If you have your copy of God's Word or you're sitting at a table that does, I think every table does, please turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. This is one of my favorite psalms uh, in the Psalter. The one of the great purposes of the Psalter is to bring comfort and to bring hope for those who are in affliction. This was a particularly 
deceptive or challenging psalm for me to understand why exactly do I find so much pleasure and comfort in this psalm? Because if you're like me, you can't help but be comforted by this psalm. And I think the reason is that it speaks to one of the main desires or the principal desires that is basic to every human being. And that is we all desperately long to be fully known and to be fully loved. That's a basic desire we have. Everybody has it. We desire and long and are made to be fully known and to be fully loved. This psalm is one of the best in speaking to that desire. And if you understand it, I think you're going to be like the the man of Psalm 1. It's a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The wind might blow that that tree, and the storms of life might sway that tree, but it will not break. But if you don't understand your Heavenly Father's love for you, then you're going to be like a twig. You're going to be someone who's blown and tossed about by every uh, life challenge, every, every issue, every hurt, every affliction. So this is a, a very affectionate, a very tender, a childlike psalm, and I want you to, to really get the comfort of it. I want you to catch the blessing of it. And in order to, to do that, I think there's some things about God that you need to know that this psalm says, okay? But let me just fast forward to the end and say, whatever your life's circumstances and whatever you're going through, you can experience the love and the affection and the tenderness that this psalmist knows, that David knows in this psalm, okay? So, if it's so comforting, why aren't people reading it a lot? Um, We live in in a world where most people don't read the Bible, and if they do read the Bible, they don't, they probably don't read Psalm 139, or maybe have never even heard of Psalm 139. And so why aren't people reading it more? And I think a big problem for most people that gets in the way of their comfort and the blessing of this Psalm is that the framework of the culture teaches us not to trust in a heavenly father. And here's what I mean. If you look at uh, verse one, Lord, you've searched me and you have known me. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Uh, Verse 4 says, before a word's on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. Uh, Verse 6, it's all about God's knowledge of us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And then in verse 23, you've searched me and you know my heart. So one of the very first things that this psalm tells us about God is that he's infinitely knowledgeable. That is one of the basic premises of the Bible. There is an infinitely knowledgeable God who knows everything about you. He also is everywhere. Okay, you can't run from him. Verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? If I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol which is uh, the Hebrew underworld. It's 
similar to uh, the way we speak of hell today, but in the Hebrew mind it was where people went after they they died. Uh, Even there, you're there. Uh, Darkness won't conceal me. There's nowhere you can run from God. So he, he, God knows everything, he is everywhere, and he also has unlimited power. You formed my inward parts, in verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Uh, I, my frame was not hidden from you. I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. God not only made everything, but he made you. And now that might sound very comforting for perhaps all of you. I don't know if you, if you, uh, if you believe in, in this kind of God. But for most people, that's not very comforting. And here's why. Because, uh, we have a lot of experience, modern people, of fearing people who have a lot of information and a lot of power. Um, Many people are afraid, including myself, of big technology companies who have all the information about what you search for on the Internet. And they use that information to target you with advertising. <laughs> or they, they profile you. They, have, they, have, they harvest your data. And they, they use that information against you to sell you something you don't need or to, to harm you in some way. Uh, there's been plenty of political leaders who have harmed or uh, persecuted people who had they had information maybe about their race or about their political beliefs. And many, many uh, murderers and tyrants have used their power and the information they have to hurt people. And so it's understandable that a God who has infinite power and knows everything may not immediately be comforting to some people. But I also want to say there's a much more personal reason, and and I hope it's more relatable. Uh, The personal reason that people have a trouble with a psalm like this, or this particular psalm, getting the comfort, is that there are really two big moments in life to be fully known and fully loved. Everybody comes into this world very vulnerable and known to a family, um, to two parents. And there's no question that that baby is being fully known. They're very vulnerable. They're very dependent. But they're not always fully loved. In fact, uh, Mary shared a prayer request of a, of a baby's life who's very much uh, insecure. He may not even live outside of the womb. One of the statistics I read in preparing for this says that uh, in 2018 there was a census that said in this country, 19.5 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. Uh, So it's a very personal thing for a lot of people because I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, we we move towards our mental image of God. I think that was his quote, but I would I would... Follow that up with, we tend to have an idea of God which is very much like our human father. Naturally, we do. We can't help but have that. And therefore, many people who come into this world 
grow up either fatherless or with a, a rough father, or as we all are, anybody who's a father, no one is perfect. And therefore, we have a, a partial picture of what our Heavenly Father really is like. And often that picture may not be a very good picture. And so it's hard for someone to have an idea that there is someone who has full knowledge of you and who fully loves you, who has all of your best interest at heart. Because for many people, that hasn't been their childhood experience. But in addition to that, let me give you one more before going back to to the scripture. I think the second moment that most people have to to experience in an earthly way, I'm not saying it's a spiritual blessing, okay? I'm not saying you can know your heavenly father just by having a good earthly father. But uh, it shapes the way that you view God. Uh, The second way is when you get married. Many people go into their marriage and they say, finally, at last, someone will know me fully and I'll be fully loved. And that same uh, statistic I was reading or that same website said that in the past 18 years, the national marriage rate has fallen by about 20%, which means that for most people, even though they may cohabitate, uh, they're not fully loved. It's not a complete it's not a complete selfless giving towards someone else. If you, if you deny marriage, you're basically saying, I'll love you conditionally. I won't love you fully. And so, or if a marriage breaks down or, or someone runs out on you, then it gives you the impression that your, maybe your earthly husband walks out on you. It gives you the impression that maybe God also will only love me conditionally. Which is, of course, not the picture here. The picture here is unconditional love, full knowledge, unconditional love. But uh, I do want to take us back to the the Bible for a minute. I don't want to stray far from the text. Uh, if, If you would like to turn with me to Genesis 3, I think there's some really interesting parallels with Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 5, the serpent comes to tempt the woman, and he tempts her with with knowledge. Um, Before I read it, the psalmist says a whole lot about God's knowledge of us. It doesn't really say anything about our knowledge of God, or very, very little about it. And here the serpent says, to the woman, for God knows, in verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman uh, takes it, she eats it, and then in verse 8, after the fall, after they have sinned, both she and Adam, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid 
because I was naked, and I hid myself. I could read further, but I think the point that I'm trying to get is that when sin has entered the world, we actually have a fear of being known. Uh, Adam is afraid of, uh, of God knowing him fully after sin enters the world. Why? Because he knows he's been sinful. There's shame of being known. There's guilt in being known. And so he has to clothe them. We are the only animal. Well, we're not really animals, but I've heard people say, we're the only animals that clothe ourselves. Why do we, we walk around with clothing? Because deep down there's a shame there. And um, when, as I, the Lord has, has given me in his providential hand, led me and given me a, a wonderful spouse, it's a, it's a tremendous comfort when that person knows you fully and also f- fully loves you in a, not in a non-conditional way. That is a deep, uh, deep comfort and one which marriage is designed to mimic God's love. So according to the psalmist, what's the solution to our, our main basic problem that we don't want God to know us fully. We don't. And yet he's calling us to trust in God with a childlike faith. That's what the psalmist is calling you to do. He's calling you to trust God with a childlike faith. That's what he wants you to do. He's inviting you into the experience of being fully loved and fully known. And just a a couple of verses, I think, that give us that indication. First would be verse 5. the, the, it talks about the hand of God three different times. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Is Now, is that a fearful hand? No, I don't think it is. I think this is a loving hand of God. Verse 10, even there, if I, well, go back to verse 9. If I take the wing, wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. I, uh, I, was, I was praising God and thanking him earlier when Yuri picked the, uh, the hymn, He Leadeth Me, because that is uh, you know, God's providential uh, blessing to us. That hymn expresses this song, this point exactly. He leadeth me. By his own hand, he leadeth me. It's not a fatherly hand of rebuke or a fearful hand of judgment. It's a fatherly hand of affection that knows the best way and is going to lead his children there. Uh, That's why I think in verse 24, the psalmist says, if there be any grievous way in me, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We have a, a book in our, our children's library called The Boy Who Wouldn't Go to Bed. Uh, the title explains it. And let's see if my, you remember that book? Yeah, okay. Let's see if my kids remember that book. Anyway, uh, it's about a boy who, in, he doesn't physically run away, but he imagines himself running away because he doesn't want to go to bed. His mom says, bedtime, and 
The boy says, no, says the boy. And he goes on this imaginary journey of running away. But even there, in his own imagination, his mom breaks in, and he gets tired and breaks down. And uh, John Calvin, on this psalm, he said, however far off we may be from God, he is never far off from us. And that's really what this is about. It's that we're like children who need to be led in the everlasting way. We can't find it on our own. We can't get there on our own. We need the help of our Heavenly Father. And, we, and it's not even when we don't want to do what he's asking us to do. He's committed to finding us. He's committed to tracking us down. He's committed to leading us in the everlasting way. Um, to use a different example, maybe a more a more theological example, I would love uh, to hear Augustine on this psalm. I would love to hear Saint Augustine preach on this on this psalm because um, Augustine was, in my opinion, one of the first theologians of the affections. Uh, he he said one of the main problems we have as Christians is that our loves are, are all disordered, okay? We love things that we shouldn't love too much, and we don't love the things we should too little. And one of the main, we all remember, or most of us may remember, they say we all remember, Augustine's confrontation with Pelagius. Uh, if you don't know, Augustine was one of the um, early church theologians. He prayed, one of his prayers was, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do as you will. And there was this other, this other theologian named Pelagius, and Pelagius said, wait a minute, Augustine, you, what you're saying is that God would give you a command that you don't have the power to obey. Why would God give you a command that you don't have the power to obey? And Augustine's response, and this was a, a big church controversy, was essentially that, of course, God gives us commands that we are not able to obey, to obey in order to lead us to Christ, who is able to fulfill those commands on our behalf and give us the grace through his spirit to obey. We are not able in our own flesh and bone without the help of the Holy Spirit to obey. And I think Augustine would apply that also in our desire for the everlasting way. We have to be led there. We can't find happiness on our own. In fact, the national um, phrase that is ingrained in many Americans' minds in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness, we often think we can find happiness on our own terms, in our own way, in our own power. And I think Augustine would have said, that's a, that's a fool's errand. We're like children who don't know what's best for us, and we can't find our way on our own, and we need to be forgiven of sin before we can ever find any real peace and comfort. So what, have, what are the fears that this passage addresses. Quickly, I think there are three. 
And one of them is simply the fear of being alone. Uh, if you read in, in verse uh, 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? However far off we may be from him, he is not far off from us. There is one who went through much worse than whatever you're going through and who will never leave you or forsake you and is committed to leading you through by the, by his own hand. So you're never alone. And the second thing is you're never un, you're always remembered. There's a fear of being forgotten. I think. Um, in verse 17, there's a fear of, of kind of being overlooked by our Heavenly Father, I think, of wondering, God, do you really understand everything I'm going through? But instead of that, the psalmist says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I really wonder what some of those thoughts are. I'm I'm kind of frightened sometimes to think that my Heavenly Father knows everything about me. He knows everything I'm going through. He knows all my own thoughts. And undoubtedly, those thoughts that He has of me are of a beneficial kind. But just to think that the number of thoughts that He has of me outnumbers the grains of sand. Um. That's amazing. I think it's, it speaks to the desire that we all have to be fully known and to be fully loved. Here's somebody, God, who has all the information about me and is completely and utterly for me. I think it was, um, I've heard this phrase from a number of people, but I think it was attributed to J.R. Tolkien. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That's, that's a, a phrase that I believe he said. And let me tell you what I think he meant by that. I was recently uh, given a book by someone, I won't, I won't say who gave it to me. Um, it was a health book. So I don't think anybody would know this person, but it was a health book. And on the cover of the jacket were um, commendations, or I forget what you call them, um, people commending the book, but they were all popular figure, like pop culture figures. So like Oprah Winfrey <laughs> was, was saying, this is a great book. And um, uh, who else was, I think it was Jay-Z or some pop artist. And I knew instantly that I would hate this book. Um, I just, I knew I would hate it because there was nobody who commended the book that I thought was praiseworthy. <laughs> I don't really like Oprah. I mean, I hope, I hope I'm not offending anybody here. Maybe I am. Um, but if Oprah thinks this is a fantastic book, and all of these other popular figures in Hollywood say this is a fantastic book, there's a, there's a good chance I'm not going to like this book. Um, and that's because, you know, if I write a book, I don't want those kinds of people praising the book, right? I want somebody who's praiseworthy to, uh, to say this is a good book, you know? Uh, I'd like for my pastor to say this is a good book, you know? Somebody who I admire. And so 
what this is saying is that the God of the universe, who is infinitely praiseworthy, who is infinitely uh, holy and worthy and knows everything, he has vast thoughts towards you that are beneficial. He thinks you are praiseworthy. And that's what you really desperately desire. You desire someone who is worth, who has infinite worth to think you are worthwhile. And that's what this psalm is saying. Your heavenly father knows you, he loves you, and he's committed to leading you in the everlasting way. So it speaks to the fear of being alone, the fear of being forgotten, and finally I think it also speaks to the fear of of a purposeless walk through life. In verse 16, it says that your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God knows every single day in your life. It's already been written down. And if he puts so much attention into how he made you and crafted you and formed you, then he placed way more attention to what he's going to take you through and where he's leading you to. And where is that place that he's leading you to? And I'm about to get there, but before I do, I just want to address verses 19 through 22 because I I, I don't want anyone to say, hey, you didn't talk about this. Uh, Verses 19 through 22 seem like a kind of a slap in the face if you read this, um, as I do. Because it's a tender, childlike psalm, and then you get to 19, and it says, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Um, Do I not hate those who hate you? Verse 21. I remember in sixth grade, um, I believe it was sixth grade, but I was in Pam Cummings' class at Grace, and she taught on this psalm. So Pam Cummings is married to Alan Cummings, who we've been praying for. And she got to this psalm, and she got to this verse. And I remember her saying that the more you love somebody, the more jealous you are of that person's reputation and affection. Right? The more you love someone, the more hurt you are when that person's name is being drugged through the mud. John Calvin um, he said that the keen sense we have of what concerns our private interest, honor, and convenience makes us never hesitate to engage in contest when anyone injures ourselves, while we are abundantly timid and cowardly in defending the glory of God. What John Calvin is saying, and I think what Pam Cummings is saying, is that you know, we get upset when someone criticizes us or someone slanders us or someone says something, offends us in some way. And yet we don't often get as upset and offended when God's name is being reviled. And I think it's an evidence of one's affection for God that you care what people are saying about him. You care what people are saying about Christ. That's a sign of affection. And Christ really is the ultimate way that God addresses our fears. He doesn't give us more knowledge 
about himself other than what he's given us in his word. He doesn't give us more knowledge about our own life's story and journey. He doesn't give us more exhaustive information, but he does give us a person. And that is that God, in the second person of the Trinity, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, became incarnate. He became a child. He took on flesh. And he submitted to his heavenly father like a child. And he even told his followers, not even those who disbelieved, but those who believed in his disciples in Matthew 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? His disciples asked him. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or John 3. Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Other sages with much knowledge and wisdom said, here's the way to live. But Christ said, I am the everlasting way. I am the way. And all of the fears that we have as followers of Christ, fears of being isolated and alone and abandoned and forgotten, fears of a, of a, of a purposeless journey, those fears were really addressed by Christ himself. Uh, he was abandoned by his closest friends, fully known, and yet, humanly speaking, rejected. He went to Sheol, you might say. Now, there's that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. And when I read that, that part in Psalm 139, if I go down to Sheol, that's what it made me think of. And there's a debate about what that means, but at least it means that Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And he was despised and rejected by men. It was the Father's will to crush him. He was crushed and afflicted, and you might say forgotten or rejected by his earthly community in order that you could be accepted and brought in to the family. <laughs> Right, so that you could live without any fear, that you could be someone who is of infinite worth to him. That's the substitution of the cross, and there's no other way for you to have to be fully known and to be fully loved unless Christ gave himself for you. And so what should your response be? What should your response be to someone who gave so much for you? I think the only response is that you would make a wholehearted commitment to following him. And that's what Paul would do. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 8 through 9, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I'm not saying that we all have to be the Apostle Paul and that we can all follow the, the Lord like the Apostle Paul did, or even that we're all called to that same, that same specific ministry, but we are all called to know Christ Jesus as Lord. That is what you are called to do. And if 
if you ever want the experience of being fully known and fully loved, if you ever want the experience of being like a tree that's firmly planted, that isn't tossed about and isn't, as we just had a, a, a recent storm and some of those trees that had not deep roots fell straight over into people's houses. If you really want to have an identity that's firmly rooted, you have to have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything for you because he loved you, because he thought you were so worthy, not in your own self. In fact, you were full of sin. You're worthy of his love, but all of our deeds are like filthy rags before God. Even your best deeds. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because you had some merit in you. But it was Christ's merit. <laughs> he substituted himself for you. And so you can be fully known and fully loved. You can be brought forward toward, toward maturity in the faith. And so I invite you, my prayer for myself, my prayer for my kids, my prayer for um, those who I deeply love. My prayer really for anyone is that we would know the Lord, trust in the Lord like a child, and follow him all the days of our life. So won't you join me in that journey? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your hand has led us to the foot of the cross. We thank you that you have given us your Son, what more could you say to us than what you've already said? You've given us everything that we could ever hope to have. And yet, Lord, like little children, we long to satisfy ourselves with other things. I pray that you would cause us, like David, to cry out to you for mercy and to admit that we are children who have lost our way and that we need to be led. And I pray that you would give us a childlike faith. When we are in sin, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us by your Spirit and draw us to a deeper relationship with you, deeper knowledge of Christ, greater affection for Christ. I pray that you would encourage us by your Spirit with, with the help of your Word, your Spirit speaking to us through your Word, that you would encourage us in the way of Christ, the way of the cross, uh, not the way of pursuing happiness as our culture defines it, but the way of pursuing Christ as you define it. And I pray that each one of us here would have the comfort of being fully known and fully loved, because that's what we are in Christ. We are fully known and fully loved. And I pray that that blessing would go to each of us here, and it would extend to those who don't know you, Lord. Draw others, draw others in to, to Christ, that they may dine at the table of Christ crucified and raised, that they too might be nourished by Christ's atoning sacrifice, and they too would know what it's like to be fully loved and fully known. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.